Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding on air live with Mr. Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. Go to focuscompounding.com uh, to get write-ups. Almost 20 years of write-ups from Jeff Gannon for free uh, going to www.focuscompounding.com. Uh, you can check out all of our content on the internet. Go to our Twitter, which is at Focused Compound. And of course, uh, if you're watching us on YouTube, we have a big backlog of videos and podcasts. Uh, and if you're listening on a podcast app, there's a bunch there as well. Uh, so Focus Compounding, who are we and what do we do? Uh, if this is the first time you're tuning in, well, let me tell you, we are an investment advisor uh, located in Dallas, Texas, and we are focused on identifying high-quality companies in pockets of the market where large pools of capital uh, cannot or will not invest. Uh, if you are going to download the presentation uh, to get access to everything that we're going to go over in the podcast, uh, you'll get our framework, um, uh, everything that we speak about here every single week at Focus Compounding. But if you want to do that, uh, go into the description and click that Google Drive uh, link to be able to download it. Uh, but we do have a hedge fund for qualified investors um, only, uh, investment minimum $2 million, no management fee, 15% of the profits with a high watermark. Um, and if you don't meet that qualification, we do have managed accounts that we custody at Interactive Brokers, uh, minimum investment 250000 management fee 2.5%, no performance fee, and no high watermark. So reach out to me at andreafocuscompounding.com to start that conversation. So today is September 28th, 2022, and the S&P 500 year-to-date is off about 22%, 10-year uh, yield currently at three spot seven zero five percent we're going to talk a little bit more about this because there's been some interesting things going on in the market this week that i think uh is uh, gonna make the history books crude oil 82 bucks and natural gas seven dollars jeff have you been following everything that's going on uh with like the bank of england and everything that's going on in the united kingdom um i saw what your headline there says yeah Okay, so if you're watching on the screen, uh, Bank of England uh, to buy bonds in bid to stop spread of crisis. So a lot of uh, people have been coming out saying that uh, today potentially could have been the UK's Lehman moment. And to set the stage, I just kind of want to give a backdrop to talk about you know the way that I see it. Uh, of how we got to where we are today, and then we could talk about everything that happened. So um, everyone knows what the government did to bail us out of 2008. Everyone knows what the government did through COVID. Um, and it's now obvious that perhaps the punch bowl was left out for too long at the party, right? Both between 2008 and 2020, and then after 2020 to the end of 2021. So starting in 2022, the U.S. Fed aggressively started hiking interest rates to tame inflation. Uh, Fed funds is at three to three and a quarter, up from nothing at the beginning of the year. If you listen to the podcast, we hit on interest rates pretty much every podcast. 
Um, and as Treasury yields go up, bond prices go down, right? Mm-hmm. So when a safe U.S. 10-year bond yields close to 4% as it did today for a little period of time, um, from an opportunity cost perspective, that safe 4% yield in the U.S. looks quite attractive to bond investors in other countries, right? So we'll come back to this. So stay with me for a second. So countries around the world are also experiencing a ton of inflation, very much like the United States. Uh, Last Thursday, the Bank of England raised interest rates to slow inflation, uh, which is currently at about 10%. So there's actually a little bit worse than the United States. The following day, which is last Friday, the new chancellor revealed his new growth plan to, in quotes, release the potential of the UK economy tackle inflation, and deliver higher productivity and wages. And the tools he announced for doing this, Jeff, include cutting taxes and increasing spending. Mm -hmm. So the UK has rampant inflation, and it's also taking measures that some would believe is fighting fire with fire. So theoretically, if we want to take a step back and think about this, The UK now has less revenue coming in from taxes and could be looked at as a riskier, like, lending proposition. Um, All of this combined with, you know, the pound and inflation and all the information that has come out uh, caused bond prices and the pound uh, to dramatically fall. So the strong upswing in UK government bond yields, which, as we talked about at the beginning, is bond prices falling, it triggered margin calls from large pension funds, which forced institutions to post cash or do so by slashing positions, which ultimately prompted the Bank of England to step in with an emergency injection of 65 billion pounds, which is 69 billion US dollars of bond buying in an effort to stop forced selling and to stabilize the bond market. So the Bank of England came out today and said they are firing the printers up uh, to backstop the bond market via quantitative easing. So inflation in the UK is basically 10% and they are starting QE again, Jeff. So this news crushed US yields because I'm guessing the market potentially is looking at this like, oh, this is what the solution is going to be for U.S. stock markets as well? I mean, really, I have no idea. I mean, as I said, the 10-year yield was up to about 4%, and then it finished at like, you know, um, uh, 3.70%. These are pretty large moves in the bond market. And what's crazy is the Bank of England, in order to fight inflation, they're going to have to continue to raise interest rates. So, on one end, you know, they're going to have to bail out the bond market. And then on the other end, they're going to have to raise interest rates to fight inflation. So pretty crazy news that uh, came out today. And I was curious, Jeff, if you have any general thoughts on um, everything that's going on in the United Kingdom. And I mean, has there ever been another situation where they need to, a country needs to raise interest rates? Uh, But then on the other end of the spectrum is also going to be firing up the printers via quantitative easing uh, to basically backstop a market. And in this case, it's the bond market. I mean, pretty unprecedented for sure. 
Um, so, I mean, there have been cases where a central bank helped the uh, spending side of a government um, finance its debt by controlling what yields would be. And that's been done before in some countries, including the United States right after World War II. Um, and this has some similarities to that. Uh, what you're talking about, where I guess, you know, um, they would be concerned about, I think, longer term bonds. I mean, I don't, they don't give a lot of detail here in just this article here, but um, that they are going to probably shift what they do in terms of what they buy there. Um, so I think it's going to be different than uh, what people were used to in the past. Um, so you might see that in some countries. It's possible, I guess. Um, obviously, the currency moves have been very large for a lot for all countries against the dollar. Um, a little bit more for the pound than like the euro, but big for everyone, you know, including China recently and stuff. So, so all currencies versus the dollar have moved a lot. As an investor, that let's say you you do hold a position that trades in pounds. I mean, how would you be thinking about this? Would you be thinking about it? Would it just be sort of business as usual for you? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I'm looking more at other countries. Um, the countries that we would invest in generally just because of uh, what companies we can find that we could understand and invest in would be like Japan, the United Kingdom, and different parts of Northern and, and to some extent Western Europe. Um, a lot of those, and also Canada and Australia, um, a lot of those are now, all of those are now attractive on a purchasing power parity basis and most of those were unattractive in some cases they were extremely unattractive not that long ago so if you weren't going to hedge the currency then um it's a lot more interesting now the potential that you could buy more earning power in other currencies um, by exchanging your dollars for what you believe will be more earning power from um these companies over time none of this means that it will be good in the short term though um, there are reasons why uh, currencies are moving the way that they are, you know, and these can sometimes have a lot of momentum to them. But over time, obviously, it's better to invest when you can use an overvalued currency and exchange it for earnings that are will be in an undervalued currency relative to you. And um, generally, uh, for most of the time that we've been doing this podcast, to some extent, the United Kingdom, Japan, Nordic countries uh, had overvalued currencies versus the United States on things like purchasing power parity and just in general did not look that attractive as a place to invest without hedging. So is it purely from a um, currency basis that you are becoming much more interested in and view these other countries as being way more attractive then? I mean, if you're going to look at this with a fresh set of eyes, I mean, are you still just looking for companies that are trading at cheaper valuations or, I mean, how would you go about, uh, you know, looking for these businesses? Is it purely from a purchasing power parity perspective then? Uh, yes. So um, in general, uh, I would say it's not, it, it, it's you, it's often the case that actually, um, a country that's currency is down a lot, uh, their stocks won't 
also be down a lot versus um, the stocks in a country where their currency is up a lot. So, for instance, it wouldn't be unusual that, say, the dollar's up a lot and U.S. stocks are down a lot, but then you compare it to another country where their currency is down versus the dollar, but their stock market won't have been down as much. That's not uncommon. That's pretty common, actually. So if we see the same size changes in another country in some of those stocks, uh, then that's where I would get very interested. Many of them, some of them, had cheaper stocks going, you know, going into COVID and, and beyond and stuff. The UK was cheaper uh, in general than the United States. The United States was pretty overpriced in terms of its stocks compared to others. Now, a lot of that is due to the mix of what kinds of companies are public in the United States versus other countries. That's most of the reason, I would say. Um, so, although it seems on paper that Japan and the United Kingdom are a lot cheaper than the United States, um, when I compare a tech company in the U.S. versus a tech company there, a drug company versus a drug company, you know, it's not as attractive as it seems on paper. A lot of it has to do with what companies are public in, in which country. But there are some that are cheaper. You know, we've talked about car dealers, for instance. Car dealers in the U.K. and Japan are cheaper than in the U.S. They're more expensive in the U.S. Um, that's, you know, there are cases like that. And um, there are companies that I've been interested in, but I would be more interested if the currency seemed a lot cheaper. And so that's happened. You know, that, that move has been a large move. Um, and it's also just an issue that you're just, we're just way more in the United States. So I wouldn't necessarily say, oh, I would love to be 100% in some other country. Uh, it's just that you're just completely in the U.S. To, to a large extent. That's been the case for me. Generally, investing is very, very little investments in the rest of the uh, world. In fact, we have very, very little investments usually that even generate much revenue from the rest of the world. Like compared to S&P 500 companies, we are much more like Berkshire's mix where almost everything comes from inside the United States. Uh, even when I invest in other countries, they're usually countries where uh, companies in those countries where they're generating all their stuff domestically. So like UK, we own a car deal in the UK. Uh, they're just earning all their earnings in the UK. They're not earning it in other places. Is that by design? Not really. Uh, it's just a fact of the overlooked uh, companies that we favor, you know. In some cases, uh, it is sort of by design. I think, um, for instance, I mentioned Japan. I think that domestic-focused Japanese companies have often been a lot cheaper than um, Japanese exporters because I think uh, investors from the rest of the world are more interested in the exporters. And that's true for a bunch of different countries, probably. I find that to be somewhat true when looking at some small countries, that there's just uh, they're, they're large export-oriented um, businesses are well known to investors, but they're uh, if there's say a brand that isn't known in the U.S. but is in that country, then it, it tends to be cheaper. So when you're talking about the business mix or the mix of businesses uh, that international markets offer, what do you mean by that? Oh, uh, you mean like in terms of the indexes of what the United States looks like? That that's what I meant, really. Is so um, the types of companies. Yeah, so when they compare stock markets and they say the the PE of, you know, um the Schiller PE of Russia versus the Schiller PE of Turkey versus the Schiller PE of the UK versus Japan, um the kinds of companies that are public in each country are somewhat different. I think they're uh the United States is way overrepresented in certain categories, mainly technology. The really big giant tech companies are all 
Um, I mean, there's a few exceptions, but they're U.S. companies. And uh, uh, other countries, it's a different mix. Um, as I warn people, especially with smaller countries and emerging markets and stuff, the companies that are public aren't even necessarily a very good representation of the overall economy in those, in those countries. Um, even in the United States, when you think about it, uh, the results of the economy overall and the results of the public companies are not necessarily the same. For instance, the U S is way overrepresented in the S and P 500, the Dow, things like that in uh, goods. So for instance, you've seen that goods have become a bigger part of the economy since COVID um, as opposed to services. There's actually not as much public services companies because so many of them are small uh, private companies. And so you do have an overrepresentation of things like say Amazon or something, which is all, you know, is a lot of it is, is selling goods on the internet um, and a way underrepresentation of you know, hair salons and dental offices and um, all sorts of things that pe- uh, that's actually a pretty big part of the economy. So that's just something that we're used to. Um, in some countries, uh, it's very big because it could be a lot of energy stocks or it could be a lot of um, uh, like real estate related things or a lot of financial things where some of those are really small. So for instance, in the United States, you know, in the indexes, energy is tiny. But in a lot of other countries, energy it might be a really big part of their public companies, uh, public indexes. Would you ever just flat out purchase the currency as an investment? Or why would you only, you know, use that sort of macro top down view of, OK, I think, you know, the uh, purchasing power is better. You know, I'm going to swap U.S. dollars for maybe um, like the pound, for example, and look to find a company. I mean, have you ever thought about just going out and and uh, swapping currency for currency and just playing it that way? No. So there's a few reasons for that. So one, I don't like to use debt. Um, And for a lot of things that people talk about outside of stocks, I think that the appropriate way to do it would be to use leverage. I don't think that the the returns uh, are sufficient without leveraging them, although the returns like adjusted for the risk might be. So we talked about a little bit with things like preferred stock and, and those things. Um, in those cases, honestly, if I was going to buy it, I would use leverage. I don't think it's appropriate um, to buy them outright on 100% um, cash basis the way that I think it is to buy uh, stocks. So that's one part of it. Um, the other part is that in general, I think that if we have any skill in picking out things, it is really based around businesses. And so we think that we can add value that way. It's the same suggestion I make with like bond things or something. Um, I don't know that there's a lot of value to people picking out which investment grade bond they're going to buy, right? Because for most people, they don't have any skill in that kind of thing. The the effect they could have would be so small, you know, but it might make sense for them if they were good at that sort of thing to pick out things in junk bonds, because there'd be more, it would be more realistic to be able to do that. I think that you can potentially, if you, you know, been studying businesses and trying to understand stocks and stuff for a couple decades, um, add value by which businesses you pick in other countries. And um, that would be the the focus of what you're doing. Uh, as long as the currencies aren't overvalued, then it might be uh, interesting to invest in those countries. Having said that, though, you know, people ask about purchasing power parity because that's the thing I mention all the time, just as an idea of trying to give some people an idea of what 
I mean by overvalued or undervalued other than just it's gone down a lot or up a lot. Because I'll say that about some currency and they'll say, well, no, but you know, the, that's not what people are saying generally. Saying what they mean is like it's it's just very recently in some sort of trend where it's you know they're looking at something that's a few months of how it's moved and it's a little bit cheaper than it was before. Or something you know, um. So it should theoretically, um, the the exchange rates incorporate a bunch of different stuff beyond just purchasing power parity. I think usually for many of the countries that we would be interested in investing in, and most of the ones that you would um, uh, listening to this, be interested in investing in, uh, ones where we can get a lot of information, all the English speaking ones that are larger, um, economies better known. Um, I wouldn't expect that the government policies, uh, either of central banks or of the, um, sp- uh, spending and tax and taxing, um, would be dramatically different that we could reliably predict that. So, you know, as a speculator, you might predict that, okay, well, here's who's in charge now in, in the UK, here's who's in, in the US, but there'll be elections in a couple years um, in each of these places. There'll be pivots in policy. There'll be changes in, in attitudes about things. So I, I think that purchasing power parity is a good place to start for those places. But political culture is important, and so I do think there is a difference between, say, you're investing in um, German bonds and you're investing in uh, Turkish ones because there's a long pattern of behavior that's different in those places, a difference in political culture there. Uh, I'm not talking about investing in China or Russia or um, certain emerging markets of things that are either unstable or one party states or something like that. We are really talking about things like investing in the UK, Japan, US, Canada, Australia. Um, their policies might be a little different for a period of time, but they're probably likely to swing back and forth over time. One will be more, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're just a pendulum that will swing that way. That might not be the case. It might be that for a whole generation, one's policies um, turn out to be completely different than others. I'm just not sure the market can pick that out ahead of time. Mm -hmm. One question that basically always gets brought up whenever we talk about international stocks um, is the fact that you don't hedge the currency. Can you explain Mm -hmm. why you don't do that and just what your thoughts are towards that in general? Sure. So I don't hedge the currency for a few reasons. One, I don't really like um, hedges that have to be maintained over time. I've talked about this a little bit before. You've seen problems with, I've seen problems with this recently with companies that have run into trouble with this with COVID and everything. Um, I think it's one thing to hedge something if, for instance, you are um, like, say, short a common stock and long a convertible preferred or something. Um, then you're hedged in a different way than something where you'd have to uh, keep making the choice to maintain a hedge. Um, so I think that's one issue that there's issues of timing things and these things can quickly turn into speculative stuff. Um, the other thing is for me, uh, with rare exceptions, these are, uh, the overwhelming allocation is to the United States. Um, and so I don't mind something that adds more, uh, diversification in a sense. Um, now you could say that's very bad because think about it. If you have been invested in these other countries, um, then you would have had a decline in dollar terms uh, at the same time that you're having bad results inside the United States in your U.S. stocks that way, right? So it's not helping you out that way. On the other hand, from the perspective of um, people in other countries, of course, they may be looking at things and say, oh, well, 
you know, I am not really seeing declines in my U.S. Uh, stock positions and stuff because when converted back into my currency, it looks like these things are fairly flat, right? Because say they're down twenty percent or something, but my, uh, but the dollar is up so much against my currency that it evens out a lot. Um, for some mm-hmm. of these countries, it practically does even out. Um, yeah, that's my feeling about it. But um, you certainly could hedge. I just think that it's not really um, necessary in the sense that I th- had a, I think for most people, if they want to do this, they probably want to hedge. But I think most people's decisions about this stuff is different from mine in that I don't care what the fluctuations will be as long as I think that it's that the sort of base rate of what I'm doing is not um, I'm not trying to smooth out results, which is what a company is often trying to do when it's hedging things. Uh, so this is the same thing as when people ask about some risk arbitrage thing or something. I don't really care if I engage in some sort of thing that way and then a deal falls apart and you lose a lot of money. As long as you know that if you did this 10 times, it it would uh, be a good decision. Same thing here. Uh, if if you expect to be investing in, thing, in foreign um in uh, uh, foreign companies relatively randomly over time. Um, I think as long as you're not doing it when you're uh, into currencies that are overvalued, then I don't think that you're really harming yourself. And then you're widening out your choice of what companies to invest in. That's the main purpose of why you're doing this is because you would never do it unless you thought you were finding better companies at better prices, putting aside the currency thing. You know, um, I invest in Japan, did not do well in the currency, still adjusted for a terrible result in the currency. The results were much, much better than in the United States. Um, So, you know, um, if you can find something that goes up 50, 60 percent a year in the local currency and the currency goes against you by 20 percent, you know, that that's not necessarily a problem. It's more that you're trying to find things that are really different. so I would never, if I could find something in the U.S., a car dealer that was the same price or whatever as I could find in the U.K., I would just buy the one in the U.S. It's not to do it because you think that you're going to get some benefit from the currency. I've never invested in other countries on the expectation that it would benefit from the currency. I've just always made sure that um, uh, th- that I have tried to avoid uh, investments where I feel like the, the currency would be a problem. And... Most of the time, that is not an issue with all the currents. You know, it's not an issue with all the countries out there. So it's not like it stops you from investing all around the world at some point or it encourages you to do that. But there are some countries where I would avoid in the past, where there were particular ones that got seemed very expensive, mainly because of weird things about their... uh, for most, it was something related to energy or some other commodity. Uh, in a few cases, it was related to them maintaining um, a sort of a, a form of a peg or something. Um, and, and those things could be risky. So there are sometimes ones that got out of line. but those And a lot of those are like smaller countries. Um, but most of the time, you have some countries to choose from that aren't, you know, don't seem absurdly um, overvalued or something. And, and now you have, you know basically the whole world to choose from yeah i mean it sounds like you're spending time in other countries i mean what countries are you looking at do you think the uk is the most attractive from everything that you're looking at or where are you looking so i think in terms of stock prices and the kinds of companies there and the currency yes 
However, I do want to warn on the shorter term about this. Um, depending on the company, there are some huge risks with the UK because of what's going on there. Um, if we assume, like what you talked about, that they want to um, slow down inflation, right? Lower inflation. And that the um, fiscal... Uh, decision-making is going to be um, in the direction of more inflation rather than less, then that just means that the um, central bank will have to do more. If the central bank does more than people thought it would have um, to fight inflation, to offset the fact that the the government is doing less or is working against um, what they're, you know, it's not coordinated that way, Um then that could have a very large effect on certain kinds of businesses. So, for instance, we've mentioned Howden Joinery before, right? Howden Joinery is a very attractive price right now on that stock. It's a good company, a good price. Um, and But what would be most affected by expectations for very tight monetary policy there um, would be things like housing and and, you know, they do um, cabinets and kitchens and things like that. So things that are related to that, housing, carpeting, all those things. And also adding on to that, the things that we talked about before, like car dealers and stuff, will be more harmed than they would otherwise be. Um, so that's a big issue. So, for instance, here you see the the market cap in the EV. Um, so basically you're trading at about 10 times or so what your pre-tax profits were before COVID. Um, and that, you know, obviously you can see this is a stock that has high returns on equity, it's grown over time. Um, that's a very reasonable price. You know, the tax rates over there are not actually, in fact, if they don't change things the way that they're playing, oh. the tax rates are a bit lower yeah. there. Uh, yeah, they were supposed to rise, rate. right? Yeah, that was already planned. Um, so they're a little bit lower there than the U.S. Um, so they if stay you at 19. Do, yeah, yeah. So if you, if you... Think about that. Um, that's a very reasonable price for some of our business like this, but it could be really bad. In fact, on a short term basis, it could be worse. You know, you could imagine scenarios where it's worse than like two thousand eight. Uh, I just just mean the depth of the decline for housing. Um, you know, you can even imagine stuff like that in the U.S. for certain kinds of things. So I don't mean that you're going to have a long term. Uh, recession, you know, thing along the lines of what you saw before, but that the decline in housing, the sh the sharpness of it, could be really bad in all housing related things, um, and so that affects things like um, Howden Joinery. But there are other companies that similarly, you know, have come down a lot in price. Some of them generate some earnings from the rest of the world. Um, we talked about Hilton Foods before. I think they have some issues um in the long run i'd be less sure of them than howden joinery as a company but i think that the price there is very reasonable you don't see a companies uh, of that quality and um in the u.s trade at those prices right um a good example of this one that would be really easy to compare u.s versus uk is uh, i believe the tickers dom it's the um, master franchise in Domino's. Yeah, that's it. Domino's. Yep. So this is quite a bit cheaper than the U.S. Domino's. 
Um, so the U.S. Domino's is the parent of all these things, but they have publicly traded a few of them. I forget if it's four or five, but they have publicly traded franchise um, uh, companies in in some of these countries, including the U.K. And it's um, not very expensive. Now, they have more issues. Their results recently have not been as good as the U.S., uh, dominoes, but you're you're part of the same system and everything, and um, it's still been pretty good, as you can see from the results there. I mean, this is something that's grown revenue, earnings per share by you know eleven, twelve percent. They started buying back stock a few years ago, and they've done it in a meaningful way. Howden Joiner is a good example of that. Hilton Foods not, and that's part mm. of my problem there. Yeah, mm. um, but Howden Joinery really did starting in 2015 or something start to go in that direction in a really meaningful way. And actually recently, if you look at Domino's uh, in the UK, they have, and they use a reasonable amount of debt. I don't know if they're at one and a half times or, or two times EBITDA or something, but that direction. So there you go. So if you see, they they did buy back a little bit 2016 to 2018 or so, but they really bought back a lot in the last year or so. Um, and in fact, they've they've had debt go up while buying back stock, which is much more the pattern of the, the Domino's parent in the US. So that kind of capital allocation, that's your more outsiders type capital allocation. Um, I mean, these kinds of things in the U.S. are very expensive, not just Domino's itself mm-hmm. in the U.S., and it is a lot more expensive. But you could just go through the list of all sorts of um, really strong, like fast food uh, type brands in the U.S. They're not cheap. Mm-hmm. So do you well, look at Domino's. uh in the UK, it's down sixty percent year to date. That one there, I believe you have the. They're giving you the uh, ADR, so th- of course that might be incorporating the currency uh, mm-hmm. to some extent if it's if it's efficiently priced, right? But I don't know how liquid that um, is. But if we go, yeah, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, that's fine. I mean, that's an I accurate. St- yeah, I just did it quickly on. Uh... On Google, but we could even see right yeah, that one. This one would be the correct one. Yeah. So what does this have? This has probably fifty percent. Yeah. So that sounds right. Yep. Um. So a lot of these, and look at the the dividends on these things. You know, now they have higher dividend payouts in a lot of these countries. I wouldn't mind if they used more on the buybacks. You know, I wouldn't. You know, if Howden Joiner wasn't paying a dividend, if Domino's wasn't paying a dividend, they were using all for buybacks. That you know that would be better in a lot of ways, especially mm-hmm. at these prices. But um, you know, it depends. I think on a forward basis, looking at it, I was trying to figure it out. It it's might even be closer to eight times, you know, EBITDA than say 10 or 11 or something. Um, it's a, just a reasonable price. Um, mm-hmm. whereas Domino's pizza in the U S is quite a bit more expensive, even if you just look on things like sales and stuff and they're not radically different. If you look, you know, we can see long-term margin information and stuff like that. Earnings per share is different. Capital allocation had been different. But, you know, it's actually the UK sales have grown just as much as the US sales over a 10-year period. And um, and yet the price to sales is a lot higher here. Um, again, differences with capital allocation. Same as like when I, I warn people about that with the car dealers. The car dealers have better capital allocation in the US than in the UK and, and Japan and places like that. But they're a lot more expensive, which kind of reflects that. So when thinking about investing internationally, right? Your boots aren't on the ground, okay? Mm-hmm. Comparing like a Domino's pizza to um, like a Howden joinery, for example. Right. You don't understand a company until you understand competitor and 
customer behavior and decision making, right? Do you right. think it's easier? Like, would you consider Domino's in in the UK to be more of a two foot hurdle than a Howden joinery, for example, where it's like, well, it's Domino's, it's pizza, people are people, people like pizza, people there like pizza. Um, you know, that's probably a little bit easier to understand than potentially the how to joinery side where now you're thinking about the housing market, interest rates, uh, you know, purchasing power of people, um, you know, their uh, culture towards like style in their kitchens and things mm -hmm. like that. I mean, do you think Domino's would be a little bit more of a, a lower bar than a company like how to joinery? Um, Let's say all things equal. Yeah. Uh, no, I actually find food things and stuff really, really hard to evaluate for other countries. Um, I have some data on, on the UK things and can tell from some things. And because it's part of the same system, we just have really comparable data from the US and, and things there. And all sorts of stuff's in English, so we can kind of figure out stuff. Um, I think usually what you're saying is basically true, but... I think restaurants and places like that are a little hard. Um, breakfast things, all that uh, can be a little hard uh, between different countries because it could be very easy to misevaluate that. Um, in both cases, it depends a lot on the, like the competition stuff and understanding how how high quality the other choices are versus in the United States because sometimes it, there are a lot less uh, competition in a category than you might think. Um, so, you know, because like there's different mixes in terms of the UK, in terms of, um, takeaway stuff with pizza versus other choices, right. That you might have in, in a country. Um, so presumably there'd be like a lot more Indian food and stuff for takeaway in, in the, um, in the UK than there would be in the U S uh, less pizza historically and stuff because of migration patterns that you had that were totally different, you know, culturally. So people weren't exposed to that for a long time in the UK. Um, whereas parts of the U S were to pizza very early on. So the, you know, um, I think that you want to make sure that you don't, uh, take certain things like that for granted. Um, so mm -hmm. like for, I mentioned Japan before that would be like the thing that's hardest in Japan, right. Would be evaluating things like food things and stuff because of the differences with the U S and same thing here, I could miscalculate those things. And I looked at a company that did food things, a couple of them in the UK in the past. And I would say the, my record on that is very mixed for the same reason. I think I at times underestimated. Um, I think I underestimated at, at times the, um, or maybe overestimated, however you put it. Uh, there, there were some cases where I think I, didn't realize how weak a company's position was um, relative to new entry in the country because uh, it turned out that the the concepts and stuff were newer in the UK than in the US, that not as many people had, had seen them for some things. That's not true for, for this pizza stuff here, but it is true for some of the restaurant things um, for parts of the country, not for around London and stuff, but for other parts of the country, I think I significantly underestimated how different Things were in the suburbs of much of the UK versus the US. The US was a couple decades ahead in terms of how intense competition was in like lesser locations and stuff. And I think I definitely miss, uh, did not realize that as much. And I would have if I'd been investing in the US. Yeah, I mean, how much did we talk about uh, Copenberg, right? 
and the mm-hmm. difference in um, preference towards alcohol um, from like United States to where they uh, it's right. produced in Sweden and where they they export it to the UK, right? Yeah, yep. It's a very big um, uh, part of their market there because they had advertised and stuff for people traveling from the UK um, mm-hmm. to to Europe on vacation, basically. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but just the difference between cultures and how um, preferences could be completely different. Um, that you just yeah. otherwise would be surprised about. Yeah, so I think that's always something that you have to be careful about. But it's it's true for any of these, th- but it's you know it's true for any of these companies that you're talking about. But that is one that you have to be careful about, about people's behavior that way and not take it for granted. But there's lots of information in the case of Domino's and stuff about what market share they might have and and all sorts of things like that. So there's um, you know, there, there's a good amount of that. Uh, it's not too hard, but people in the UK have a big advantage over me that way, uh, figuring out how strong their position is or isn't, uh, and, and not just assuming as many people might in the US that, oh, well, this is basically just like Domino's, but over in the UK. And so they're going to do it's, I might as well just buy this instead of buying in the US or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Domino's would be an interesting one, um, to look at just because of the business model. I mean, it's also nice that you could, compare it to the United States Domino's pizza. I wonder if they ever look at yeah. the company and be like, okay, well, same business model. How, how have they created a lot of uh, wealth for shareholders? What have they done? Um, you know, and now they're starting to buy back stock and stuff like that. I mean, I like the capital allocation of Howden Joinery and Domino's. Like you did say Hilton Food, they just pay a dividend. They don't really buy back stock. Um, and they've increased their share count over time. Yeah. Yeah. They did um, a, they use uh, shares to acquire something. I think yeah. was it last year and their capital structure has changed as well since we spoke a little bit more about it in what 2019 2020 time frame i think they have more debt and stuff yeah i'm not sure about some of the things they've acquired as much you know like one of them is a sort of an alternative to meat things so they did some seafood things and stuff which is okay but some of the others i don't even know if that will grow over time you know um basically it's a you know um how, how would they put it plant-based or whatever it's not real meat um so some of you know some things might uh grow over, over time um you know there some things replacing meat that way but i think some things uh will not the the things that we t- you know that the impossible burger and people got all excited about that yeah. kind of stuff beyond meat i i think consumption of that kind of stuff may be down in the next few years from what it was already so it went from something that people thought would grow and, and grow over time to something that isn't. That doesn't mean that other things that would, that there might be other alternatives of what they're talking about. Um, and it's not a bad idea for them to diversify into some other things um, to be able to provide all sorts of other choices for their customers and hedge their bets on this stuff. But, you know, using making acquisitions using uh, shares and for things that aren't as close to the core of what they've been doing, you know, um, it's not as good as buying back your stock at 10 times earnings or whatever, which is what some of these other companies are doing. That's literally what I thought. It's sort of the diversification. Um, They bought like a, the margins aren't even good on the businesses outside of like what their core competencies are that are. And I was thinking, I was like, man, if they would just, take all that extra cash and uh, return it to shareholders. Why do you think companies don't do that? Is that like the whole institutional imperative? Like they want to continue getting larger and larger and larger and 
uh, show like continuous year over year growth. I mean, you think of all these companies that Buffett, you know, invested in. Mm-hmm. Um, so much of his early investments was just taking, you know, cash from one business and using it for the other, right? I mean, these companies could just become a cannibal. And um, as long as they have not high growth, not completely like stagnant growth or negative growth, just use it to buy back a lot of their stock. Do they just not know that that's an option, you think, that could create a ton of value for shareholders over time? Uh, So I think there's a few. I mean, I don't think that until until very recently, I definitely didn't have a problem with anything they were doing. And what they're doing now might be fine. Um, they were dependent on a few customers and a few sites. And so that helps diversify them. They were until recently definitely adding a lot of value. There's no doubt that the things that they invested in um, did create more than dollar of market value. As you can see there, you know, just for instance, you could use that return on invested capital, you know, um, was consistently very high and they were growing. Um, so th- they definitely it was smart to do the things that they were doing. Um, they pay out a high dividend, like a lot of UK type companies. And so um, that constrains sort of their, their choices for some stuff. Um, and then they probably didn't use as much debt as they could get away with um, using, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad idea early on. Although if they didn't do the dividend, then they probably could have been better about using um, some debt. And like you said, like buying back stock or something. I mean, yeah, for a lot of companies, I think, if they didn't have a regularly increasing dividend over time, they would have a little bit more freedom to make really smart capital allocation decisions. But, you know, most companies also don't have capabilities that way in terms of necessarily knowing a lot about capital allocation or being organized in a way to, to necessarily be focused on that kind of thing. Um, And this is mostly a very recent uh, thing where you see a real buildup in terms of assets and stuff versus other things in terms of shares like we talked about. Um, I think you can see in the record there that they really hadn't acquired a lot of things. They both basically built it out themselves. And the returns mm-hmm. on that are pretty good. The joint ventures that they bought out and things like that that they developed themselves. Um, I think their business, especially like in red meat, um, is really pretty good. Um, and so I don't have any problem with any of that. But they have done a lot of these smaller things that I don't know how it will turn out. They might be smart decisions or not. I don't think we see the immediate effect of them when they buy them. I don't think they were buying them for their EBITDA and stuff at the moment that they bought them. I think they were doing it to do some stuff with fish, to do some stuff with uh, vegetarian things. Um, Mm -hmm. And there might be good reasons for why they do that, but it might take time to integrate that into what they're doing for any payoff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the stock is down 53% uh, year to date. I I remember we... I've been following this company for a long time. And even through COVID, we were, you know, keeping an eye on it. It's just the stock never moved at all. Um, mm-hmm. And then you can see just to like what other stocks did. Right. And then just crashed. Look at that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think you read the earnings release or whatever that they had, you know, their, their um, uh, trading report, Half whatever year. they call it in the UK. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so very strong reaction to that. Uh, Were you surprised by this reaction? Because, I mean, I, I, yes, mean, I understood, but, but... Right, I'm not good at that because I was very surprised by the fact that the stock was not declining at all for, as you can see there, from, you know, what was... I mean, we were at around 1,000, uh, so this is in pence, um, so it's a little confusing that way, but um, you were in a very uh tight range um and, and like 20 times earnings or something throughout that period um 
for years uh, with barely a dip for COVID, barely a, uh, not much of an increase when they ha- had done something with the joint venture that I thought made it clear that they were going to have a pretty big jump in their earnings. You know, they didn't react much one way or the other. In fact, if you look at the period of COVID there, they, they kind of went up. I mean, certainly compared to if we had other stocks there that we could compare it to, it definitely um, uh, went in that direction. Um, their volumes and stuff isn't a problem, but, you know, um, so they have some um, sensitivity to to um, costs and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, because their volumes are still up year over year. Um, they're just getting hit with inflation and stuff like that, mm-hmm. which basically every company is. So I thought the reaction was a bit surprising as well. I mean, at this point, because it started to trade at a, uh, you know, a lower valuation. I know you had mm-hmm. said you are more interested in how to join a company like Domino's, but are you completely, uh, I don't want to say against, but just not interested in, in Hilton because of some of the other more recent things they've done with their business? Oh, no, I'm I'm very, very interested in them. Um, I would be a lot more interested if I thought the capital allocation was excellent, especially because I think that if they hadn't been acquiring other things and, and they could really focus on the um, core business of what they do, I think the returns are very good. So if it wasn't a lot of paying out of... Um, I mean, if you look at what the share count increased by that you can see there, why did that have to be done in shares instead of being done with debt? Um, you know, uh, how much have they paid out in dividends over time? Would that have been better to have used for other purposes? This was also a stock that recently had been expensive or not cheap, you know, for the last five years or something. But if you go back looking at like 15 years or something, it was often very cheap. Uh, let's see where you got. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, this goes back about 10 years, but if you had seen from before, um, that, that, you know, going back 10 years or more, um, it was not an expensive stock uh, throughout that whole period. And, and you can see the dividend payout ratio is about 50%. But, you know, um, they, yeah, I think if their share count was more under control, if they bought back more stock instead of having higher dividend, all that stuff, that wouldn't have been too bad, especially because I think the, re- the returns on capital and stuff in the core business are very high and very and very stable. Of course, there's a risk they could always lose a customer or something like that somehow. Um, and maybe that's a big risk with like, um, the leases that they have or whatever, you know, so that's why they would never use debt. I mean, they use a little bit of debt to, to do things when they had to, um, for a moment and then pay it down. But, uh, yeah, I think with different capital allocation, I might like it better that way. Um, the the thing is with like, say Domino's or certainly Howden Joinery, um, what I like to see with a company ideally is an outlet in their core business that they can reinvest in um, with decent enough returns um, to kind of soak up the capital that they're um, they're retaining um, or and or buying back stock. Um, they could do dividends, they could do things like that, but that's what I'd like to see. And I think for the most part, the other two that we mentioned, Domino's in the UK, and how to joinery uh, do seem to have a more realistic way of having of not um, having any kind of decrease of always passing the kind of market value test you know that Buffett's talked about 
where if they each dollar of earnings that they have will create a dollar of market value because they're either going to buy back their stock or they're going to just have more locations uh, in a, the system that they have. So I think that's sort of clearer in how they're going to use up their capital over time. Um, and both of them are pretty good that way. I think actually very good in recent years. It The trend looks good for how they're going to use that. And I'm a little more just unsure with what Hilton Foods is going to do. Although I think that the the business that it's based on from the beginning is good. You don't know if the the um, each dollar of earnings is going to be put to as good use as it is in some of these other companies. So it's more of like a certainty thing. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, I think Howden Joinery used basically half of their uh, earnings to buy back stock. So for a UK company, that's really aggressive to do that. Um, I mean, stock buyback here is bigger than dividends, not something you see a lot in the UK. Um, so I think that's good. And I think Domino's even used some debt to buy back some stock. Um, so again, that could be a good sign of what they're they're doing. And it can help them not pursue too much, you know, um, growth organically sometimes that you invest in the things that make sense for you and then you can use the rest to buy back stock. Sometimes if you don't have any other... Um, you know, dividends, buybacks, things like that to use up a lot of your capital, then you you might pursue lower and lower return sorts of um, uses of your money because you have money to use um, and you're not necessarily benchmarking against, okay, this is what I could get if I buy back my stock. So when you're saying that you think the UK is starting to get interesting, you list three companies, Domino's, How to Joinery, and Hilton Food. What is it at this point? Is it just to continue to see what happens like with uh, from a macro perspective? Is it to wait and see if these companies continue to get cheaper? You said Hilton Food, you're still very interested in it. Is it a pricing? Mm-hmm. Kind of take us through where you're thinking about it. Each one has their own issues. Um, Hilton Foods, I'm a little uncertain about like their capital allocation, the organization, things like that a little bit more. Um, there's a little less information about them. Um, and I'm not as sure if the future will be as good as the past, especially in terms of how they've used their capital and how much capital they have in the business versus how much they're generating in returns. Um, so that becomes a bit of a problem because you're talking about something that's too, you know, that you're paying more than two times book or something for you. You have to be very careful about that, about their returns on capital. Um, so that, that'd be the one that'd be concerning me. Uh, how to joinery. Yeah. You could have a huge decline in terms of like earnings or something for purely cyclical reasons. Uh, if we look, we can, you can do the financials. If you look at that, I can, we can look at just what happened in like 2008. Um, because they did have a decline there that I think took a couple years. Uh, I don't remember if it was like three years or something to get back sort of towards what their, um, earnings had been before. So if we look, yeah. Um, so let's see. Uh, yeah. So okay. So they peaked. No, they, I guess they got back pretty quickly. If we look at things like EBITDA, it wasn't flat for very long. Um, off of that sales gross profit. Yeah. I mean, it was back. I mean, well, it took. By some measures, it took like five years, basically, to get back to where they were from their peak. Um, by other measures that didn't, by certain measures of profitability and stuff, they were back a lot faster. But if we really look at the total volume of the 
business that it was doing. Um, I think that those are differences we see gains in efficiency and stuff that kept earnings holding up better. Um, so you could have something that's more like that, like what we saw back then. Still, the results are not bad. If we look at things like ratios, I mean, we can go, if you look at that, you can see that um, it, it's not a lot to worry about. Okay, so the housing market crashes or whatever, and, you know, your return on invested capital is, you know, 30% or whatever. Your your um, your margins are positive and, and all of that. Um, but it you didn't have growth, you know, on a net basis for a few years when that happened. And certainly you could see, you know, something bad that way with, with housing-related stuff. Although I would guess it would be a lot sharper and a lot quicker this time than this long-term sort of thing that you had before. Um, and then the other thing with them is, uh, you know, it it looks interesting to me about the capital allocation. I d- I've been reading their annual reports for a long time. I, th- I do feel like we're really seeing a, a change. In, um, not that they wouldn't do it before, but I think we might see more of a change in terms of actual follow through of how big the capital allocation towards things like buybacks and stuff will be in part because I think of how slowed down their opportunities are for um, growth that they had before. So I think that's pretty interesting um, because they had uh, going way back, they had so much opportunity for growth inside the business that we didn't really have a good test of what their capital allocation would be. And now I think we have a clear idea of what it will be. So that interests me a lot, especially at the prices that we're talking about. But although it looks like it's at, you know, eight times earnings or whatever this says, obviously earnings are um, whatever they're up there. They're, uh, you know, I mean, they're up a lot since COVID because it dropped during COVID. But if we take um, before then, we're up about 50 percent, you know, from pre-COVID. So they were earning about 30 pence a share um, and then 35 pence before then. And we're talking about price at five pounds it's not bad mid-teens pe Mm -hmm. on what they were earning before and obviously there's been a lot of inflation and everything so probably just terrible fear about what's about to happen you know that people just get out of a stock and and avoid it if they know that earnings are going to be down a lot or they suspect earnings will be down a lot in the next year or two or whatever um you know that's probably what you're seeing here and then what about dominoes well so that it's is just interesting to hear you talk about it out loud because a okay. common question a lot of people ask is how do you know when you have sort of the, enough information, confidence, et cetera, to pull the trigger, right? And we're kind of going through this. You think all these companies are interesting, but you're also laying out reasons that's keeping you from buying the stocks. Well, I think the three I laid out here they might have bad next years or two years or whatever, but it, would I rather be in these three than the S and P 500 or something? Yes. By a long shot. Um, the quality of the business and the position that they've had, if we look long term for them is as good or better. They're in more over long periods of time, predictable sorts of things. I mean, how enjoying has a significant cyclicality doing stuff, but they, they are. And um, their prices are very attractive on an earnings basis. Um, and and even when we talk about Domino's having some debt and stuff, it's not a lot. I mean, when we look at the EV, the EBITDA type of things and stuff here, it's just pretty attractive. And then on top of that, and this is the other part that's scary, of course, to people, is that a pound is plunging versus a dollar. But on top of that, you might make money on the, on the currency over time if you're investing in it for five or ten years or something. So, yeah, I, I think all 
three of them. Yeah, it's a group, I think. Uh, but I'm not willing to say that I, I'm sure that the outcomes will be good for these companies and definitely not in the short term, but I, yes, I would rather these three buy a very large margin than like investing in, uh, just stocks generally in the U S or something. These are much cheaper and look good to me. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. What about Domino's? I cut you off. You're about to give your thoughts on that company. I think those are more like specific issues to the comp uh, to the company that I'd be interested in about management, what they're thinking and what they're doing. Um, I think it could go either way. It's a little scary with those kinds of things. I think there could be some um, decreases in the quality of the business or increases based on how well it's run. Um, it is really sort of a, an execution thing, and and um, because of the way that works, just like you saw with Domino's in the U.S. Uh, an improvement in the execution can really drive really a lot better results. We've talked about that sometime before with like, I pick out certain companies that I've said that, you know, if you can get that right, um, like I think we talked about uh, there a long, long time ago, there's a company that, um, that I did not invest in. I should have, I, I mentioned, and this is going back like two decades, practically uh, Rollins, which is a, um, uh, is a, um, uh, pest control company. Uh, but I mentioned that I think when I was writing up, like, um, might've been Otis or something like that, an elevator company, um, that for certain kinds of companies, improvements in their systems, and this was also true for like, uh, companies that, um, picked up and cleaned laundry and returned them and stuff, um, was another one. If you can figure out improvements that they can make in their own internal systems and some of those things with their own, uh, uh, business, not with a lot of the external things, but just how they run the, the efficiency of their system that way, um, you can have really big improvements. Uh, and then also you can have over time, poor management can lead to lead to much worse outcomes. So I'm a little would want, to, I, I a little bit would want to learn more about Domino's in the UK to see what's going to happen in the future. I'm not, there are some changes and I'm not sure that everything was going really well in terms of their uh, how they were running things themselves. But I do think that they control a lot of their own destiny in these things. And that if, if run right, you can see a big improvement that way. But that's also just a general thing about restaurant things or fast food concepts and stuff. Um, it sometimes pays a lot to, to, uh, to bet more on the, the systems, the cultures, the management that are executing well and avoid those where you're seeing some slight degradation over time in it. Uh, because those can kind of build up in a really bad way. Um, so I also think the competitive landscape in the UK wasn't as tough as the US. So it, they might have had a little more, um, they, they might have been a little sloppier and gotten away with it in some ways about how they were running things. So there could be more room for improvement there than there is in the US. Mm -hmm. What about Games Workshop? We've talked a lot about this company in the past. You had said that you mm -hmm. uh, had wished you invest in the company, did a lot of research on it. Um, yes. We're down about 38% year to date. Um, it's a business that we've talked about a lot. Do you have any thoughts on uh, Games Workshop? I mean, yeah, I mean all I... these companies have to be like super cheap for you to uh, be interested in it. When I mean super cheap, I mean like less than a 16 PE. Uh, no. I mean, so obviously it wasn't really that cheap at the point where I said I should have bought it. You can see what happened there. Um, mm -hmm. I, I liked the company a lot in terms of its position and everything. I, um, 
thought it could be, I thought it could generate more profits than it was. Um, and you saw that it, it did. Um, it what quadrupled in a period of a couple of years, it's earnings and it's, you know, doubled for, even from there. So this is, that's the thing that's a little scary here is that this is a company that's earning nearly 10 times what it was um, in the, you know, about 10 years ago, um, you know, or in 2014, 2015, 2016, it, it was nearly, you know, 90% less than it is now. Um, that's a combination of sales being up somewhat. And then also like a tripling of the operating margin and stuff. Um, this is a good indication of what we've talked about before though, about like how you can tell that a business is a pretty good one ahead of time and why you might be able to pay a high price to sales and everything is the potential existed. So this is one where you actually realize that potential. So you can see this notice, first of all, that for a company, this size, right, it was only doing, so these were in pounds. So it was only doing about 120 million to 135 million in, in pounds. And back then in dollars, that would be like 160, 170 million, you know, under the old exchange rates. Um, so this is a sub $200 million revenue business back then. And yet it had gross margins of about 70%. Um, it was a very high quality business and obviously the leader in its, its field and all, all that sort of stuff, but it, it actually hasn't even really improved the gross margin really much at all, um, that you can see there. So it hasn't had to, because it has that really high, um, margin there from the beginning and really high quality. So it showed all these things that as a small company would have a lot of promise for it being much larger. As you can see, it didn't even increase the gross profit nearly as much what we're talking about here. So like, you know, gross profit only tripled or something. And yet that was like a quintupling or, or more, uh, quite a bit more of the operating profit. So, um, th this one is one that's like, you have to figure out sort of, um, whether it's in some sort of short term, um, boom that maybe won't last all that long. I don't think it is like what happened with them with when they did a Lord of the Rings thing um, going back a long time now. Uh, when those movies came out, uh, they had a license to do something with that. And, and then later on, that same license is, you know, barely generates any revenue for them. Um, I think they're doing good things. Uh, you just always have to be cautious when you have something like that because, you know, yes, it's 16 times today's earnings, but it's actually... 35 times, you know, earnings before COVID. So mm -hmm. you just want to make sure that you're not getting something wrong there about what happened. You can read what they talk about and you can follow a lot of things online. And actually this one's interesting in that there does seem to be some possibility. I don't know that's a focus for the company exactly, but there may be some possibility for um, monetization of th IP through other ways over time. I, you know, I think there will be some more video games and, and things like that in the future than there were in the past. And, um, I think they're definitely focused on earning all the money from what they do here, but you know, they do have some IP that they'll get from other stuff over time. Um, I mean, uh, uh, you know, royalties and things on that, but they're very focused on, they just make a huge amount of money from what they have now, obviously. Um, so would you ever buy an insurance company or a bank in a different country? So I did a, I, I did tweet about, yeah. um, what people would think are competitively advantaged UK companies and admiral group came up a few times. And actually I went back and was going through some UK stocks that have been written up on focus compounding. And this stock, mm -hmm. uh, has, uh, what was on the website a few times. So I'm kind of curious to hear okay. your thoughts on, on, uh, 
this company and just insurance in general that's not in the United States? So I've kind of analyzed Admiral Group before. Um, it looked interesting to me in the past, and I think it has an interesting business model. Um, it, you know, analyzing insurance companies is difficult, and analyzing them in different countries is even more difficult. Um, so you'd have to know more about that and be a little careful. Um, but it's always interested me. Yeah. So I, it's one that I think would be fine for people to look at. Um, I don't know how cheap it is versus other kinds of companies you could buy in, in, um, other places, uh, you know, other countries. Um, however, I think it's probably, there's not a lot that you could buy that have as good a business model probably. Um, but, but just so like when we're talking about price to premiums, book earnings, this is actually a pretty high price for mm. a insurance company, you know? Um, I'm not saying that's, that's bad. Um, because buying the right insurance company, even if that means paying up a little bit, you know, you do a lot better buying progressive at premiums to book than buying most insurers at a discount to book. But what some of the other things we talked about before, um, you know, I think how to join looks like some of the cheapest, like building trade companies in in the world. And it's one of the better ones. Um, Domino's looks pretty cheap. And, you know, I, I think Domino's is a pretty good system overall, um, you know, as compared to any other one that you could invest in. So, um, you know, so, so I think the, this is not, this might be a good stock, but it's not like, both an above average company and a way below average price or something. I think it's above average company, but I think that actually it's there's lots of insurers around the world that are cheaper. And this is actually a pretty high price for an insurer, you know, today, but I think it, I, I, this is the kind of one I'd be interested in. And you can see that in the record and stuff of what they've done. Um, the same as in the U S and stuff we wrote up progressive. And that was, you know, going back, I don't forget seven years or something ago. Um, that was a more expensive stock actually compared to other insurers, but uh, having the best business model, um, in something like insurance or banking, I think it's easier, usually insurance, um, is really, really valuable and you could pay up for it. I think it's okay. Um, it's better have that than cheap. Mm -hmm. Would you look at an insurance company, not in the United States, the same way that you would, analyze an insurance company in the United States? Would you be thinking differently about um, the managers, the people are running it, or is it all pretty much the same stuff? You know, high retention rates, uh, what are they doing? Do they generate flow? What type of insurance are they writing? Are they logical about the risks they're taking? Would it all be the same process for you? Um, I don't know. Uh, I've looked at some in other countries. I think I understand the U.S., uh, market better and so it would take more adjustment for me to understand in other countries again uh, there's also the issue of I don't know how efficient they are sometimes in the competition in some places so like th there was one that a lot of people liked and I wasn't so sure about what it would be like when they moved out into some other countries and they'd kind of have to move out into other countries faster because their home country is not very big um, and so it seemed like maybe their home country was a little bit of an easy easy um low hanging fruit in terms of like the, the competitive landscape wasn't so tough. Um, 
whereas you know in the u.s you could expand for a very i mean you could expand forever um because of just how big the size is and you could see what's replicable in each in each um state and everything so i think that's a lot harder um i i would have a hard time investing in a um non-consumer facing insurance company in another country because i just feel like it would be very hard to gather a lot of information on about it uh i and also one that wasn't in a country where the was English was the main language spoken, even if the company's own reports and stuff were, were all in English, I think I would need a lot of information otherwise about it. And so that would be hard. Um, there's just a ton of information that I can get in the U S from regulatory things to all sorts of other things that I can understand that I wouldn't understand and have access to in the same way in other countries. So, um, I, I have looked though, like I just recently, I was looking at something in, in, um, Canada, but mainly cause it's very cheap, not because it's, you know, I think the business is great or I understand it real well or something. What What about uh, banking industry, right? There's so many banks that trade over the counter in the United States. And again, right. like you understand the industry here, the regulations, the law here. And, you know, quite frankly, there's a lot of overlooked banks here. So do you think you would completely, I don't want to say write off because that's not true, uh, investing in, a, um, you know, a bank that's like in the UK, for example, but for you to do it, I imagine it would have to be just an absolute slam dunk or just like absolutely stupid cheap. Yeah. It would have to be something very, very special. I have looked at ones, you know, offshore banking things. Uh, I think we, um, was it, no, it was ever written up. Yeah. Yeah. Anti Butterfield. Was that ever written up in, um, I thought so. Uh, yeah. I so I don't remember that's that an interesting one. That's an interesting one. So, you know, it's Bermuda based, um, company uh and it, it's just very simple possibly in, in some ways um but actually it's still basically investing in in u.s type stuff it's it's still very similar um it, it bought some other things it bought something from i think credit suisse um recently so it's also in other places like channel islands or luxembourg or places like that which are also basically offshore effectively same sort of thing um yeah uh, so, I mean, there's ones that you could try to figure out like their business model and what their sensitivity to interest rates and all of that. Um, obviously this looks very strange. Like if you look at this, you can see, if you remember my write up of like federal agriculture, so, uh, you know, um, farmer Mac, um, you see much more that sort of thing in terms of what you're seeing in terms of the, the, um, sensitivity here to thing. Like you can see that the net interest margin is quite low and yet the returns on, equity are quite high loans to deposits are really low which obviously means they have a ton of security so what kind of securities do they have and and um this is just a more unusual company you can also see that they're they're much more leveraged and so that looks much more confusing here what kind of company banks that you're used to seeing in the u.s you're not used to seeing such high leverage ratios at the same time as you see really low loans to deposits so they obviously are earning a lot of securities um they have uh earnings calls you know like so you can this is a u.s listed stock um so you can learn about it that way uh there there's some that have good culture or something in other countries that i've you know learned a little bit about the banks there in general i think there's way more banks in the u.s that are publicly traded than in other countries and in general i like the banks i think there are more good banks in the u.s than there are in other countries um, especially in terms of things like the quality of the deposits and the, the possible stickiness of those deposits and all that. Um, but the things that people are interested in with like the giant U S banks and especially the things that were investment banks or something, you know, um, those aren't really all that different than 
some in like Europe and some other places. Um, but those aren't the banks that I really look at and I'm interested in, you know, as much. So, uh, you know, when we're talking about things, we don't talk about like Goldman Sachs or something. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm sure that there are some, uh, European banks, for instance, that are really, um, cheap and might be good, uh, purchases that way. Um, you know, if, if things radically change in the Japanese economy, maybe their banks would be interesting again, you know, um, um, but I, yeah, I, there's just so many choices in the U S that if it was, if you're not constrained by size that you need something really large to invest in, then I think, yeah, the U S is, is better. There's big banks everywhere though. So you could, if you need really big things, there might be choices there, but if you can invest in the smaller stuff, there's so many choices in the U S I'd say for banks, U S is, is really good that way. And to some extent for insurance, I mean, um, both. Yeah. I think there's a lot of choices. There's just so many, but certainly mm -hmm. banks. Speaking of insurance, then we could finish with some more UK stocks. Um, obviously, Hurricane Ian is uh, going mm -hmm. through Florida right now, and there are a lot of people listening that live in Florida, so we hope you are all staying safe. Um, but it made me think about uh, a insurer that we've right. spoken about a few times on the podcast, Universal Insurance Holdings. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of curious to hear about if you were already an investor in this company and there's this um very strong hurricane that's coming through florida right. uh where they write a lot of business i mean what would you be thinking about um let's say you aren't an investor as you're not are, mm -hmm. um have you been looking at this company are there things you're thinking about kind of take us through what your thought process would be right so we could look at some different things with this company for the most part i think people overestimate uh the importance of the hurricanes directly to them they I haven't looked recently, so I don't know like for this season what their situation is, but in general, they do have quite a lot of reinsurance that would protect them from mm -hmm. very large um, uh, losses related to a single um, bad hurricane season or something like that. Uh, reinsurance pricing is very important, and obviously, if you have um, big losses of capital and stuff from the reinsurers over time, they're going to raise their uh, prices, and they have raised their prices um, over time. So that that's more of an overall economic sort of thing. When when uh, a few years back, I think it was very easy to get really cheap reinsurance. Um, I think the two issues for this company generally are the the reinsurance. Well, there's three issues actually. The reinsurance thing that we talked about. Um, so reinsurance pricing is one. But two is the the huge risks I think for legislative slash social inflation, whatever you want to call it, um, fraud uh, judgments. Um, that are more expansive in terms of what's covered. Um, uh, any decisions by the state to limit pricing below what it should be um, in, in a market to be able to uh, um, cover everything that way. I just think that the problem is that this is a very big item uh, for homeowners as a percentage of um, their costs and stuff in Florida. And so it becomes a political issue and you have to be very careful about that. And that's always a scary thing, whether we're talking about banks or we're talking about insurers or whatever, uh, utilities, you know, it does matter what the political climate is. And they can certainly end up in a situation where, um, you know, lawyers want to make money off of these things and legislators uh, aren't willing to... Um, give as bad news to homeowners in terms of what they have to pay for it to be the rates that are necessary for a solid industry in that state. Um, and in the past that has kind of happened at times, I think. 
um, in the state. And so I would just, I think it's the opposite of when we talk about things like title insurance and stuff. It's a highly visible uh, industry in the state. It's politically sensitive and um, that can lead to uh, rates that are not um, sufficient to, um, to not just a question of generating enough returns and stuff, but to actually keep all the companies solvent that are doing this. So that's the risk, I think. And so that for me, you know, people in Florida and studying that and stuff would know more about that. Um, but, you know, that's, that's a real issue. Yeah, I mean, it's a issue in Florida. I mean, home insurance is very expensive here. I'm curious. I mean, do you think that they should just do like a state-owned insurance program or something like that? I mean, a lot of insurance companies have left Florida because it's not profitable for them or they take these huge baths. Um, it's just a very tough place to write insurance because of uh, hurricanes. Uh, I mean, that's a political question and stuff for them to decide. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, if they do something like a state thing and stuff, which they've done before and everything, no, I, I mean, I don't, th- no, I don't think that that will work out in time. Um, I think that having a mechanism by which your rates are sufficient, um, is what would work out better, but it's a question of all sorts of states have this. I mean, states have things for, for auto insurance. That's the same sort of thing for medical things. We talk about some people subsidize other people. There's all sorts of different ways of doing it. You can have a bunch of insurers fail and then you can bail them out. Um, you know, there's different ways of how you pay for things. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, what's happening is the, I mean, so there's issues for legal things I was saying about. So there can be claims that you maybe as a state, as a government, whatever, don't really want to be covered and to be paid for and stuff. It can be fraud things. It could just be all sorts of stuff like that. Um, and that's an issue. Same as there's differences in state by state and what's ends up them paying out on workers comp and stuff. Um, but on the other hand, there's like what we're talking about here with this, um, hurricane stuff, there's a a lot of damage that they want to have covered. Um, that's not something that you get to decide as a state. Um, you have to have some mechanism by which you cover the actual damages that you have um, for that. And you can do it a bunch of different ways, but you can either let them set rates high enough um, or you can have some sort of method to deal with it at, when you have to bail them out or something. Um, or you, you can do all sorts of different things and they've done a bunch of different ones. Um, but you have to do it one way or the other. And yeah, a lot of insurers like leave states and stuff for that. But I think it's, uh, I think it's a crazy, I mean, I agree with the Jack Ringwald thing. There's, there's no bad risks. There's just bad rates. And I think that's Mm -hmm. also true for governments in all these places for lots of different things. Their excuses have to do with that. Their losses are so high or that this or whatever, uh, the market is capable of setting the right rates. And if mm-hmm. all the major insurers aren't willing to write in your state, then you're doing something wrong probably. And that's why they're not willing to do it. Um, but what if it's the other side of the coin where if they were to set that price to what's a, a rational price, people wouldn't pay it. Oh, I agree. But I mean, the storms will destroy things. It'll have to be rebuilt no matter what. I mean, they're, that's not a negotiable thing. Um, And maybe if insurance rates are high enough, then people wouldn't build in certain places and things. Um, Mm -hmm. No matter what it has to be dealt with. Um, When we're talking about these sorts of losses, the same thing with auto things or whatever. Um, The things we're talking about with the legal things are different. And so that is a, that's something that's up to them about how they want to deal with um, that sort of thing. But 
what your hurricane losses are is does not is not decided by the insurers and stuff you know mm -hmm. so um it has to be dealt with some way of course you can just you don't need insurance i mean insurance is not necessary governments can certainly replace insurance in all areas i mean it's just they can always take over that function they can take it over for medical if they want to take over for auto they can take over for auto um in the US for instance you know insurers are not don't cover like if there's a nuclear disaster or something that's understood that that will be uh, something that the the um, federal government would be dealing with um, just because it's not realistic, they feel that anyone would be able to cover that kind of unlimited exposure in those cases. Um, but I think that, you know, a lot of these things that we have where there's problems in the states are the desire to set something at a certain level, um, which are kind of your classic things of like, you know, you can determine, you can set a price on something, but that doesn't necessarily mean that at that price, you'll have the right supply that you want. You can have a certain level that has to be supplied, but then you can't set the price. You really can't say, here's the supply of what we need and here's the price and we're going to set it ourselves unless you're willing to do it yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, in other words, you're willing to, to directly take all the losses. And obviously in your budget, you could, I mean, pay for all losses yourself. Um, but there'd be all sorts of problems from that and all sorts of inefficiencies potentially. Um, so, you know, that's just a question of what they want to do. Uh, but no matter what, you are going to have this problem of um, of uh, having to pay it eventually. If, if the, I mean, if we go to the quick FS thing here, we can look at uh, for Universal. Um, the other issue that I was, uh, had not mentioned. Um, I said that I think that I said there were three issues. Um, the, the other issue is just the investment size of it. So um, if we look at their balance sheet, I think people could see that to get an idea. Um, so anyway, uh, if we look at like premium growth, it's kind of low and stuff for me. There's just certain signs. I think that the, you know, so there's all sorts of things in news, things that people know a lot better than we would about um legislation stuff in florida that would change things but if you look the past few years it certainly seems like premium growth uh from what i've seen and read from their reports and stuff i i just don't think it's been sufficient to cover the 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 what loss um growth and losses will be over time obviously if you're insurer or something and you have a combined ratio around 100 or whatever buffett's wrote about this in the 70s and 80s in his letters you have to grow your premiums um at the same rate or higher than the growth in the um, losses that you have. So if losses are growing at like 10% a year, you're expecting then you've got to grow premiums at 10% a year, or you're going to start, at, you know, the industry has to do that. They're going to have negative numbers. So you can kind of tell a year ahead of time if you've got problems. And I say the last few years, they've had problems. And that's it, just the industry in Florida is not pricing, uh, has not been raising prices fast enough. Um, so here you see like securities and stuff, it's quite large, right? So um, we can just see that their their investment leverage is really big. That, um, I mean, that's an annual thing and stuff, but the securities investments, if we just take that, putting aside other things, um, is like a billion dollars. And this is on a market cap of a company of what, a few hundred million? Mm hmm. Yeah, 285 million. Yeah. So there's significant like investment leverage where a lot of ones that we, we've talked about before have maybe a lot of underwriting leverage where they don't have significant amounts of investment leverage. And so then that would matter what your uh, return on your securities portfolio is. Like if it's a lot of short duration stuff, um, really short government. Um, debt and all that uh, say you know it's not I mean because we've looked at this before but say it was all like you know um, uh, you know two year 
bonds, right? To your, uh, to your notes. Um, then obviously you'd have this big increase in your in investment results that would really help um, you out and vice versa, you know, if, if um, uh, the other way. So I, most all the insurers we've talked about before on the podcast have really been talking a lot about the underwriting stuff. The investment side of it can be significant in some cases, and it is significant here. You could just do the math and see that they have large amounts of investments per share, and that's one way of kind of analyzing how much investment leverage there is, is how much the results of their investments are, how much your your results in the stock has to do with their leverage um, in terms of the returns on their investment and everything. And conversely, if you have that happening and you have some company that's like all investing like 30 year bonds and stuff while rates are going up, then obviously you can have really big, um, losses, which are leveraged in a big way if there's a lot of investments per share. So different insurers, it's a different mix between how much of the value you're getting from the underwriting versus how much you're getting from the investments here. You can see like the honor and premiums relative to the investments, the investments are pretty high and stuff. So there's a lot of like investment leverage here. Which do you prefer? Underwriting or versus investments? Uh, it depends. Mostly underwriting, just because there's so few that are good on the investing side and what they do and that really run things in a smart way. Uh, but Berkshire had a lot of success for a long time uh, with only mediocre um, underwriting. Uh, because they generate a lot of float and Buffett was really good at investing it and prices were low, and like I said, in the 70s and 80s. Um, and then when the investment climate got not so good, they by then were really good at underwriting. So, um, hist- you know, recently people haven't been kind of looking at the investment side of it at all because they tend to invest in things that generate yield and the yield has been so low um, that you know, people aren't even used to thinking seriously about how important the investments might be the same way that when we talk about frost or something, they pretty much ignore the fact that they had, you know, 13 billion or whatever that the fed now, if it earns 3%, then they start paying attention to that. So the same thing here, as these things roll over, you know, for some of these companies like progressive and stuff where they are buying some short-term stuff, you know, you're going to see that increase a lot from it was yielding almost nothing to it's yielding, you know, a few percent and that will start to actually matter. Mm-hmm. In the reported earnings, yeah. Buffett invested in a few insurance companies in his early days, correct? Yes, he invested in a few, and um, he certainly invested in some with, with Berkshire, and I would say... Uh, um, Why didn't they yeah. work out compared to National Indemnity? Oh, as like underwriting things and stuff, they didn't work out. I mean, the, he may, it, it really helped um, drive Berkshire's growth and everything, but... Uh, Buffett had a very hard time growing any homegrown insurance things and even buying some things didn't go well. Um, so I think, uh, it's a hard, eh, I shouldn't say it's a hard business. It's complicated. Um, uh, he said it well in some of the letters, like if he invests in Geico, because if you have a, a better mousetrap, like you were saying in an industry like that, it has huge value over time. Uh, it's very hard to get an advantage though, and because it's basically a commodity type business, um, you know, most people. I mean, Geico and Progressive and stuff. When we talk about those, that's different. People might actually know what that is, but we are talking about like t- take homeowners. Ins- I mean, a lot of these are good examples, um, like homeowners. Okay, so a lot of people wouldn't really know who provides their coverage. 
Um, for consumers, obviously, you've heard of these things, so you, you might know, okay, I have it bundled with this thing, so actually I know who covers it this way or that way. But basically, a lot of things are required by law in some way or required by the lender to protect them, and that's why you have the um, insurance. And so it's just a requirement that you have it, if you know, so your renter's insurance or your homeowner's or whatever is because you have a landlord or a lender or whatever that's requiring you to have it. And then you're just getting it from whoever um, without really caring what the policy is. You don't know what you chose in terms of what things are covered and what aren't. Um, and so it it's not something that can be um, uh, differentiated. It's a very pure commodity that way. And so then when you have such a pure commodity, then you kind of end up with results that are as bad as your uh, that that are only uh, can only be as good as you know um, competitors that are who might be a, you know overzealous or whatever, and that's sort of the issue that you have normally if you can't differentiate yourself at all. But usually there are ways to differentiate yourself in some way, and someone gets a little bit of a advantage. Uh, as you have with like Geico and Progressive and um, that small advantage. And it's not huge um, in such a large market. And with the economics that it has creates a lot of value. Um, so it could be that it's a direct um, business that you have that way like they do. Um, it could be whatever methods you have of distribution or, or whatever. Um, it could be advantages that you have somehow in being able to price certain risks or whatever. Um, and then that can turn into a really big advantage over time because it can take a lot of capital. Um, I think Buffett said that it, it really amplifies, you know, the insurance business really amplifies ma the quality of, uh, you know, the business results are really, uh, the importance of management is really high. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true. So really bad management there can lead to really bad outcomes. Really good management can lead to really good outcomes. Um, and it's a lot more of that and a lot less of the quality of the business and all of that kind of regardless of management. You know, I think he would say, you know, it doesn't really matter who's running Moody's. The business is what it is. And any CEO can come in there and you're going to get pretty similar results. That's not true for an insurance company. Um, so I think um, that you have to be careful about looking at things like just say price to book or whatever here and um, going off of that, uh, unless you know, I mean, there's sometimes where it's so cheap uh, that you have companies that even though it's an inferior sort of thing, it, it'll still work out okay. There's lots of life insurance companies around like that now um, where people buy them because they're at such deep discounts and everything. But um, in the long run, you could make a lot more money if you can find an insurance company that can do something special and that... Um, has the right management to to do that. Um, you're usually going to make more money over time with like a um, progressive in the long run or something than universal. You can see that just in their results too. When I talk about like a commodity thing, you can see how commodity-like their results look. It is, we could put up, you know, um, I mean, we've talked about before, like this is what a semiconductor company looks like or something. This is what an insurance company like this looks like. Um, they, they, have no returns basically in a lot of years. And then they have huge returns in years in mm -hmm. which there's tight supply. Um, I mean, to, you know, like it shows there that premium growth is 54% or something 2015, you know, we could find out what the policy growth was there and stuff, but it probably wasn't high. So that's a lot of pricing growth. And then in other periods, like in the last um, five years or so here, 
my guess looking at just premiums growth and everything and knowing a little bit about this company is that in all years that was probably insufficient. Um, probably. I mean, certainly recently it was. So you had really strong pricing in some years and then really weak pricing in other years. And it's mostly dr- driven by that. Um, when I talk to people about insurers all the time, you know, if they have like a bad loss year or something, they always talk about why they had those losses, you know, explain to me that the, the loss ratio, that the combined ratio is high because there were these losses associated with this or this that were unusual in that year. It's possible. But the number one thing to look at is, is the price sufficient? Because that's, you know, the, the combined ratio that you're looking at or the loss ratio that you're looking at is relative to the premiums. And the most likely culprit is insufficient pricing. And unfortunately, it's commodity business. And so that can definitely happen. You know, you'd like to price higher, but you can't. Um, and that's usually a much better explanation than the argument that like there's some unusual losses this year that won't recur. And, um, you know, um, you can see just that's the premium growth stuff that we're seeing there and everything that's driven by a pricing environment. That's not driven by some dramatically different things in terms of losses. In fact, we can kind of look at things like um, the profitability. If you kind of pay attention here and look at like the premium growth and you can see ahead of time when the premium growth is really weak, that you're likely to have much weaker profitability in those years. So, you know, if you notice like um, where they were growing there, so you can see the part where they're, premium growth is really strong, their underwriting profit is the same or, uh, you know, so like where it turns over is when you start to have just a couple years of lower premium growth. Um, And there's other factors here. There's the losses that we talked about and there's also the reinsurance pricing. But it's just, you could imagine like the last couple years, since COVID, for instance, you're looking at premium growth that's only like 10% or 12% or whatever you can imagine with the inflation that there is in the United States, you can imagine with the um, home price increases and all those things in Florida that can't possibly be sufficient premium growth. There's no way that only growing by like 10% a year. And that would be assuming that, you know, they weren't, they're writing all their policies in other States and stuff now, but just like, just as a headline number, that's very worrying that that number is too low. Um, It just seems like it would have to grow a lot faster. Mm Mm-hmm. So if you were to speak to an insurance company's management team, what are some things that you would be trying to get out of that meeting? Let's say you find a company, you like what they do, you the numbers look great. And similar to banking, it's a industry where you probably would want to speak to management. What are some right. things you'd be trying to get out of that meeting? Because um, like for banking, it's culture, are they cost conscious right. or thoughts towards risk? These are things that we've done in person, right? Yeah. What are yeah, your thoughts on I, that I'd, towards insurance companies? I'd say it's probably pretty similar. Um, insurance, I might be, not might be, I would be even more worried about um, them moving into other areas and doing other things um, more different. I think you can move faster in insurance to do dumb things quickly than you can in bank or likely to in banking. Um and uh, that doesn't usually work out that well. Uh, that is part of the reason why I think it's held down returns for some companies more than you'd think in insurance. If they had um, not tried to expand into doing somewhat different things, um, the results might not be as bad as you think. Sometimes it's surprising how decent their core business is in many ways, their oldest parts of their business, um, but how 
regularly they expand into a variety of different things that they then discontinue. If you read it right up some, you know, Value Investors Club or whatever, you're going to see with all these insurance things, of course, the company has gotten religion and they're not going to write these lines anymore and they're going back to the main thing that they did before. But you'll see the same thing repeated every, you know, three or four years or whatever. There'll be another write-up saying the same thing. There's never, you know, um, th that's always what it is. They're always going to shrink down focus and focus on what they were doing well before and get out of these things that they were in that didn't work out as well. Um, so, yeah, I think it's very hard to evaluate ones where we know they're going to, move off into different kinds of insurance um, than they have been doing previously. Um, very, very difficult. And I think people should read the uh, Berkshire letters from especially the 70s and maybe also the book Capital Allocation um, where he talks about all of the different adventures that Berkshire had in urban auto and reinsurance before G. Jane was there um, in uh, workers' comp in California and uh, a few other things. They were really good at investing in Geico and making a lot of money off that. They were really good in national indemnity and keeping the business that I already had. And they were good uh, in building a reinsurance business. Um, after they merged with Genry, eventually things got okay enough with that. It wasn't a total disaster. But there's not a huge number of other successes that they had, certainly not growing things themselves. Uh, they had almost no good experiences with doing that and even expanding things by taking something that worked in one particular place and then saying, okay, let's make it 10 times bigger and go to other places with it did not work out well. Um, but as Buffett would say in those letters, it's kind of worth it because you can fail five, six, seven times on a small scale as long as you cut off the experiment quickly if you hit on something that really works and then that can grow forever that way. And you can certainly see that in the history of how it worked out for Berkshire that once they hit on a few big things, they really grew it over time and it was okay. They killed off the home state companies and the urban auto and things at an early enough stage and then they really expanded things like the reinsurance thing and, and all of that um, to a huge scale. So it, it can work out okay if you, that's how you do your bet. Sort of like the Amazon thing we talked about where you can have a lot of failures as long as they're small failures. As long as you, when you have found out how to build a better mousetrap, you scale that up to an incredible extent. Um, so they just have to bet really big on the lines that they're successful in. Um, and kill things off really quickly in other cases. Um, so it's something where you have to experiment a lot, but you have to be realistic about it and stop those experiments pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Maybe that'd be a great podcast if we just go through some of Buffett's earlier writings and pick out the what he had said about insurance companies and uh, talk about it. Well, it's interesting because you know Buffett's pattern is right. If he stops talking about something, it means something's really terrible going on yeah you know? um <laughs> he won't ever uh, say like that it was a horrible experiment that wasn't successful you're right he just won't mention it ever again right so he'll mention these things and then they'll go away i mean insurance is one of the few where he's kind of even had the most direct ever i mean he actually in some of the early letters even mentions you know he doesn't say who the management was and stuff that he was praising in a previous letter or whatever but he does say when we you know, dealt with the replaced management that was more capable of setting, you know, the prices at the levels they needed to be and all that kind of stuff. Um, but they had some tough experiences, um, Berkshire, in doing that. And that was with a very successful company that overall that drove a lot of their success was insurance and what they did there. But they found it a lot easier to buy good insurance companies um, 
and grow them basically under the same management or, or very few changes in management than they did expanding into different areas, even though they tried to do that. And Buffett himself was involved in a lot of that. Um, he was more involved in insurance than in any other businesses that Berkshire was in, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, but they didn't find it as easy to, it, it was much easier to identify those things and buy them than it is to build. Um, so, and I mean, that's true. Like, you know, Geico now is what, um, whatever it is, 80 years old or, or something. Um, and it's, uh, you know, been a hundred bagger probably twice or something at this point, but, um, it basically does the exact same thing. I mean, I, I, I guess it, you can bundle it with renters or a homeowner certainly. And I guess they do like motorcycle on a small scale and stuff, but it's basically the exact same business that was before. It just expanded who the addressable market is in terms of, um, writing for everybody in the U S as opposed to uh, a much more limited uh, pool in the beginning but other than that it's it's the same thing and then it's like doing it over the internet now instead of doing it by mail it, but i mean we're talking about the same business um progressive is all based on just two ideas basically i mean there's just two parts to it so it's a little bit more complicated than geico that way but they had two successful things that's what the entire company's built on um there's not a lot of great examples of companies that went into different areas and had a uh, a lot of success by innovating on that, you know? Um, but the good news is that like you can continue, those companies continue to gain market share um, in most years for decades and decades. Once you have a better, um, you know, once you have a, a better way of doing things, because if you can just, it's sort of like Nebraska furniture mart, right? With, with Berkshire, same thing. Um, when you have a commodity thing like that, and you're able to underprice somewhat on that commodity, then you can win all the business. You know, if you underprice, you try to go in there and underprice Coke or Pepsi or whatever, you're not going to take a lot of business because there's a lot of differentiation there that way with the the brand and everything and loyalty there. But you come in with a price that's 10% below Geico um, or Progressive or whatever, you'll start to get business, you know, because Mm -hmm. it is a commodity. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about, same with banking. All you're doing is making a future promise. I mean, you could go on the curb and basically do that. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um so I I would um I think you might want to be careful generally with insurance things and we talk uh, we pr- probably more interested in investing in insurance things than necessarily I talk about on the podcast just because especially emails that I've had with people and stuff I do worry about what things attract them a lot in the insurance area. So what are some things that attract people? I've gotten emails about insurers that were in trouble basically that I mm-hmm. thought you know, there's a serious problem here and that they may not be in good shape in a year or so with what we're seeing. Um, so, uh, I think that, I I mean, they're attracted by low, so they're attracted by low price and fast growth, right? Mm -hmm. But there's a few issues there. Low price and fast growth. Generally, if you're seeing those things together with, you know, the market is saying something's wrong here is why that pricing situations like that uh that the price to book or whatever would be low at the same time that the growth is fast they're concerned about those sorts of things and then the important thing is deterioration sort of like where we talk about the f score something for for um companies in general you know where you just have this sort of checklist of things that could be deteriorated there's just a bunch of things that you could look at that you'd be worried about how they're doing that way 
Um, and they always have a plan for how they tell you they're going to work things out and whatever. Um, but you have to look at whether that's really happening in terms of the underlying um, results. And everything's lagging. You know, they're they're telling you results that are based on their guesses about things from the past. And there's a significant part of that that's incorporated into the reserves. So you're going to see it over a period of time. Um, that they're making mistakes today, but they're not going to tell you about it for a couple of years, uh, depending on the insurance thing. It could be like that. So that's worrying. I, I guess because value investors and stuff, you know, a lot of times we look at the financial statements and especially look at it that way um, as if we can compare any of these companies to any other thing. And it's sort of like we would say when we talk about Meta or whatever, and people say like, you know, would you should you buy Meta at this price or whatever because the PE is attractive? Maybe, but like obviously people are looking at that and know something about the patterns of how people are using things about advertising stuff, and they might be incorporating that into their decision in a way that I don't know those things, right? Obviously, no one is looking at and saying that today's um, situation is what's going to be the same situation a few years down the road, and yet Meta should be at this really low price versus earnings and stuff you know no one would do that they're doing the same things happening with an insurance company you're not going to see an insurance company that says oh it's trading at 10 times earnings and it's been growing 30 percent a year unless people are very concerned about what they think is happening in the future so they can look at things like what we're talking about with this uh universal one they see price they see that their premium growth is like 20 percent, 50 percent, whatever they're projecting that into the future and saying oh the underwriting profits are be great then they see their eight, nine, ten percent, and they're gonna they're gonna say, I'm projecting combined ratio over a hundred already. It's not happening yet, but I know, and that's why I say read those Buffett letters, because he will tell you in those early letters, which he does not do in later ones, make some predictions about the future and say, you know, next year's gonna be a worse year than this year. And why how does he know that? Because he knows what the prices are ahead of time for next season, you know. So he doesn't know what the losses are, but that gives you an idea that, you know just knowing what the prices seem to be in the direction that that's headed is what you really need to know um, because it's really not all about these unusual losses and stuff that you have there. It's really about the whether the pricing is strong or weak. Um, and you're able to figure that out because if they are, you know, um, what I mean is sometimes, the, so people will write about it and be like, you know, they have a combined ratio of 99 or 101 or whatever. It, it doesn't really matter in this moment what matters then is off of this what's the trend for next year and the year after that and what do we think is going to happen it may look fine when you're at that 99 or whatever and you think okay this is the worst it's going to get and it's going to improve from here but it can really deteriorate if um the environment is getting worse um and we can see that in in the future um results you know so it's just like any cyclical thing that way i'd also be cautious that way about people who are attracted to cyclicals that way they're often like peter lynch talked about this value investors right often like the low PE. And so they will look and say, all right, um, let me buy when this has a PE of four or whatever, when the, the right answer might be when it has a PE of 90, but this is the year in which we know inventories are down to nothing in this industry and everything. And no one else can take any more pain. And this is the lowest cost producer and everything. And the world will need copper from someone. So the time is actually when the price is really bad and no one's making money and everything that'll get better in the future. You know, that the time is not when everyone's opening up new mines or there's a ton of inventory or whatever, everyone's making profit because then you know that it's going to get worse in the years ahead. And that is usually when you have the lowest PE and insurance for some reason is hard for people to understand that part of the cyclicality right like they something about the 
these things like copper and stuff like they understand the idea of the cyclicality there. I think when we talk about semiconductors, when we talk about insurance, somehow people don't believe me about like these are really cyclical in the same way that like Berkshire Hathaway as a textile company is really cyclical. It's not some magical thing about that you're taking something out of the earth or whatever that's causing cyclicality. It's decisions that you're making in terms of um, pricing and supply stuff that these businesses are making. And it's a human thing that's being done that way. That that's the issue. And that's what causes the cyclicality, you know, that these just, that you've made some mistaken decisions about the past versus the current period with the, some sort of lag, you know? So basically there's the stuff that you've built, but haven't finished or something, you know, there's stuff that's going to come online now um, with the insurance things, you know, it's, it's the stuff that we, they're writing the policies first, taking the money now, basically they're, you know, they start to book the revenue and um, they're not yet seeing the losses from it, you know? So there's a lagged effect to it. And so it causes cyclicality the same way as, you know, all sorts of other industries do that way. Um, so you have to be very, very careful that way. I think in general, value investors have to be very careful about cyclical things. Um, so the, the answer most people have is to look at the price to book part of it. But, you know, my point with that is to be cautious because the price to book is really only giving you a good idea of like the investment portion of it. When you have an insurer, you've got attached a um, investment book. And so you've got this investment portfolio and then you've also got this underwriting part of it. Um it could be worth a lot less than book if it has bad underwriting attached to it. It can be worth a lot more than book if it has good underwriting attached to it. I've talked about some things where I would pay, you know, where I'd say you're safe buying at below book and stuff, but that's basically because it has solid underwriting attached to it. So you want to be very careful. It's the same thing when we talk about other things too, when we say like, um, you know, car dealer or something that are trading at this discount to book is important because the book is cars and land and buildings, you know, it's, it's not, I would never say that if it was a bunch of factories that have some special use or something, this is marketable stuff, you know? Um, and the same thing with like the, the insurance things with the price to book, as long as it's going to always have an underwriting profit, then you can evaluate on price to book. But these things like universal, you have no idea. They will have years where they have large underwriting profits. They'll have years that are very bad. I'd be very cautious about using price to book for something like that. But like, um, there are other ones where it would make a ton of sense. Obviously no one's going to let progressive sell at a discount to book because it makes underwriting profits all the time. Um, plus it grows and all that. So people understand that there's a reason why these things sometimes don't, you know, sometimes sell at discounts to book is because, um, there's their possibility of large losses in the underwriting. Um, and so that's what you want to be very careful about. And, in, and generally value investors, aren't really used to investing in businesses that have losses or the possibility for a lot of losses. You know, it's very safe if you buy something at eight PE, as long as you know, it will never, that it will never have a negative earnings year. Right. Mm -hmm. But if you have no idea if it'll have negative or positive or something, that PE doesn't really, it doesn't really matter that much, you know? Mm -hmm. So the predictability of it and the, the durability matters a lot. And so bring those same ideas to insurance. But when I, you know, and the other thing is like when people talk to me about insurance things, it doesn't seem like they want to buy it and hold on to it for a while. It's always like a turnaround thing that they want to buy it and they see a cigar you know, upside potential for that. Yeah. And also like, you know, oh, the price to book is low and I think the hurricane season will be good this upcoming year or whatever. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. that sort of thing, like it'll get re-rated and they'll make a lot of money fast on it. Um, whereas, you know, like Buffett's invest a lot in insurance things, banking things, whatever. 
those aren't quick things that he made a bunch of money on for the short term. They're finding businesses that have a better business model and holding them for the longer term. Well said. Well said. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the Focus Compounding Podcast. So we spoke about a few different stocks, um, Universal, Hilton Foods, Howden Joinery, all those stocks. You could read Jeff's thoughts on it uh, if you go to focuscompounding.com for free. I just type it in on the search bar and you will find uh, what Jeff has said about it in the past. Jeff, are you planning on uh, on uh, blogging soon? The website's basically uh, ready to go. Uh, so you can blog about whatever comes to your mind and it will uh, be for free here on focuscompound.com for everybody to read. Of course, if you're interested in our money management services, you could go and click that invest with us tab uh, to get everything uh, that we're doing on the money management side. But I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us. Hit that subscribe button wherever you are listening, viewing uh, the podcast. If that's not a podcast app, hit the subscribe button. If you're watching us on YouTube, hit that subscribe button as well. Be sure to follow me on Twitter. Maybe we'll do a new insurance podcast here shortly. Actually, a lot of times throughout our podcast, Chef, when we talk about things, I just get different ideas and I'll just write them down. And I have a couple new ones. And one of them is uh, doing something with insurance. Um, So be on the lookout for that. We have done, I was scrolling through just to see what we've done in the past. We've got about four different episodes on insurance stuff. Seems like we've done about one a year. So I think we're due to uh really hit on insurance so i thank everybody so much for tuning with the both of us if you're in florida stay safe we'll see you in the next podcast take care